Welcome to Resilience Found, a podcast of stories shared in hopes to inspire, encourage, and most importantly, let others know they are not alone. I'm Andrea Rodriguez, and this is the first episode of Resilience Found. I am joined by my good friend, Alicia Moneyhun, who is going to take us candidly through her journey of being diagnosed with Vesa Previa during pregnancy. The point of our story today and Alicia sharing her story is that if this helps uh, even just one person out there, then our job is done. Um, she definitely helped me and I hope that hearing her story can help yourself or someone that you know too. And so with that, um, we're going to start our very first interview here with Alicia and talk to her about her experience. And Alicia, thank you for being here as my first Official, Thanks for having <laughs> Yeah, my first official interviewee. Um, I know this is a conversation that could bring up a lot of emotions. Please speak freely. Um, I've let her know even before this, uh, just let the audience know that if there's something she's not comfortable in chatting about or it becomes to be too much, that that's okay. Let's go back in time. Let's start with that you already had a son with a, you already have a son, I should say. Um, it, with a pregnancy that was fairly normal. So yep. bring us to the time of finding out that you were pregnant with your daughter, now uh, Gwen, and when things weren't so normal. So I, thanks for having me. This is obviously very cathartic, as we talked about when we went through it with you and going through it. I started out with a fairly normal second pregnancy, um, I had gotten pregnant when my son was 10 months old, and first 20 weeks, everything was totally normal. Um, everything progressed absolutely normal. I had all my OB appointments, and then we went in for the, he told me I was having a girl, and I told the guy I didn't believe him to the point where he finally just showed me the parts <laughs> on the ultrasound. It was like, no, I promise you it's really a girl, and it won't turn into a boy. Um, and then we hit 20 weeks and then he kind of got serious and he's like, okay, you know, let's talk about what I'm seeing here. And he said, started showing things and talking about where my placenta was and that, and at the time he was telling me that my placenta was at the front of my belly, essentially, I'll, I'll use layman's terms, but the front of my belly, which normally your placenta is in the back of your belly. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, okay, you know whatever that means. And then he started showing me where the umbilical cord was. And he was telling me, honestly, I don't even remember now how he put it. And he said, you have something called vasa previa. And he explained to me what it is, which I'd heard of placenta previa, which is when the placenta is over your cervix. And this was vasa previa, which is where the um, cord is over the cervix. So with a placenta, it's your blood as a mom. So when you start bleeding, it's concerning. You know, we never want to lose blood any, right. any time during a pregnancy, but right. it's not critical. With Vesa Previa, it's the baby's blood. And so you have a matter of minutes from the time you start bleeding until your baby bleeds out. So at this point, I don't know any of this, right? He's told me that I have this and that they'll watch it and quite often it can move and obviously from 20 to 40 weeks there's a lot of time right a lot more time than your zero to 20 weeks anyway he said you know you'll come back at 25 weeks you'll be back in five weeks and we'll look at it again 
Well, I know myself and I did not become an internet doctor. And one thing that I told you when we started your journey, you let, let me know what was happening with you. As I said, you know, don't become an internet doctor. And, and I say to all the parents that are listening, you have to walk a very fine line because you can get into information overload and send yourself into a serious spiral. So I went into protection mode and I looked it up and I found the Vesa Previa Society, um, which is actually quite large in the UK at the time. So okay. um, it's there's a lot more in the US available now, but it actually wasn't something at the time when I was pregnant that was really normally looked at. And I remember... I went home, I looked at what it is, read it, more about it. There was, at the time, 95% mortality rate for undiagnosed cases. Most diagnosed cases, they, you know, you're fine um, because they know what to do, which we'll discuss here in a minute. So I remember my husband took a different approach, and he became an internet doctor, and he holds a lot right at his chest, but I knew that something wasn't right. He kept saying you know, that tech has really saved, you know, our daughter's life. Like we have, we should be really thankful for him. And he read all these things about this Vesa Previa. And, um, I also had what's called, there's a technical term in, for it, but basically where my, as I explained, my, um, placenta was at the front of my belly. Mm-hmm. My cord was connected to my sack and to the um, placenta, going through the amniotic sac and down over the cervix. And at that point, it doesn't really move. It's not like it's freely moving with the baby. It's connected to tissues. And it was essentially connected to my scar from my previous cesarean section. So I was still convinced that I was going to walk into this 25-week appointment and, you know, be fine. Everything was going to be fine. And fast forward through these five weeks, my husband kept looking at more and more information and I just sort of lived in this bubble and went to this appointment and I laid there and I remember the doctor saying to me, you know, okay, we need to have a serious conversation because at that point it was extremely evident that A, it hadn't moved and B, it had gotten worse and it wasn't going to move. And I remember... I just bawled through the whole thing and I was alone and you know through nobody's fault but my own you know but I I thought I was gonna be fine and like I got this like I own this the reason that it got scary is because at that point I realized that at 30 weeks I was going into the hospital and I had to be in the hospital and I had to live in the hospital and they told you you how did they deliver this message so I was supposed to in our industry Andrea and I happen to work in the same industry and I was supposed to go to at that point it's 25 weeks in two weeks at that point I was supposed to be at an event and um I'm like okay well can I travel at this event can I can I go I mean you guys say I'm fine until 30 weeks and I remember her saying to me, look, if you start bleeding, you're going to end up in this other state in a hospital until you deliver with no one. Do you really want to do that? And I'm like, yeah, no, I don't really want to do that. So it became really serious really quick. Um, They told me at that point that I had three weeks until I would come back and they would confirm when I would go into the hospital. Uh, it's possible when you have Asa Previa that you have to go in before 30 weeks because the whole point of it at that point is 
you don't want to go into spontaneous labor because once the cervix starts to open, it will rupture the umbilical cord, the vessels, and your baby will bleed out before you can even make it to the hospital. Hmm. So you have to, it becomes a conversation of, okay, you're going to go into the hospital. How quickly do they want to deliver you? How quickly do you want to be delivered? Uh, everyone has their own experience and we can talk about mine as we go through this, but it got really serious really quick and I started to super panic. Again, I was by myself. I didn't, I, I just really thought I was going to be fine. 28 week appointment came three weeks later and then I had two weeks to, to plan to move into the hospital. Um, and it got crazier after that. But the worst part was the 25 weeks. I was just convinced I was going to be fine. And I wasn't. Take us to getting ready to go to the hospital for, for <sighs> yeah. what, nine, ten weeks? It was, I, I, at the time, I didn't know how long. Okay. And we were planning on it would be between six and eight weeks and because you know you have to deliver early because again with vasoprevia they just don't want you going to spontaneous okay. labor so at this point I'm working full-time I uh, thankfully was working remote um, I had an amazing boss who was just like you know what you know it, you'll figure it out and then I had a son that I needed to figure out how to care for so I did a lot of reading at by the time I went in at 30 weeks, Benjamin would have been 18, just shy of 18 months. And um, I was like, okay, how are we going to manage the schedule? I read these great parenting books that talked about how, you know, children at that age, they are very much about their routine. So I would miss him much more than he would miss me. Uh, and then I'm like, okay, how, how do we do this? For me, I approach a problem and say, how am I going to get through this? What is this going to look like logistically? I don't really take my feelings into account, which I will preface this in saying that there, I made some mistakes. We'll talk about, I'll say what I did, and then I can tell you what I did wrong. Um, the goal, good thing that I did was I put a schedule together. You know, Ben, Benjamin, my son, was only going to visit on the weekends. I didn't want him going out of his routine he knew what was happening day in and day out. Um, I wanted my husband to focus on him. And I had the luxury of having help from my parents. So they would help um, with him. And then we're going to move into the hospital and live in this you know, 13 by 15 room for however long. So I get to the hospital. It's 30 weeks. Uh, I don't like needles. Having children is not great with a needle phobia, uh, <laughs> especially when you check into the hospital for a, a delivery that at this point is, has now very quickly, you have all of these really crazy appointments when you first check into what's called the antepartum wing, which are people that are there that are pregnant that haven't gone into delivery yet. And uh, this nurse that I bonded with, I, in fact, it's been years, and Amy was my first nurse, and Nancy was my PM nurse. And at the time, they kept blood typing me once a day, which is stupid. It's not like my blood type was going to change right. day in and day out. Um, and that was to prepare for possible blood transfusions because uh, they always they have to replenish blood every certain time. So they had to know what type you needed. And then uh, they kept 
taking my blood sugar, um, mainly because you're pregnant and they want to know if you're developing gestational diabetes. Well, with a needle phobia and getting pricked all the time, it's not great. Plus, you go in for your very first steroid injection because in order to manage the developing fetus and make sure that their lungs are developed because the full development obviously is 40 weeks and we knew that she wouldn't make it to 40 weeks so they give you these steroid shots so all these needles are coming at you this first day you're by yourself um it's just really kind of overwhelming Mm -hmm. so i'm in there it's the um tuesday after labor day and i'm like okay here we go get through those first couple nights Nancy, my nurse, my first night nurse, realized how needle phobic I was that by the second night, she cut out my blood typing test and my um, glucose test for me. She just took it over. We've been friends ever since, but it was just really nice to have that. So here I am. I'm in here. How long am I going to be in here? Second day, doctor comes in. Doctor says, I want to deliver her in four weeks. That's six weeks early. I don't know how to explain it, but all of us that are pregnant, and and even people that aren't, but I think you get to know it more when you're pregnant, you develop an intuition, a Mm -hmm. sixth sense, Mm -hmm. if you will. And I just was adamant that, no, that was way too early. And I wanted, I knew from the research that I had done that I couldn't really push for 37 weeks because at that point you're really pushing it. So I pushed for 36 weeks. And as I learned later, no one else that had my condition was able to get their doctors to do that. But for whatever reason, the stars aligned, doctor agreed to it that we would target 36 weeks. So the first, I would say the third through the fifth day, because again, you're there by yourself. There are like four channels. There's literally nothing to do. I'm working, but you know, what am I going to do when I'm not working? Did, were you able to have, like, was your husband able to be there? Yeah, he could have been there. Yes. Uh, that was one of the things (laughs) that I, I told him to focus on our son and I pretended like I was fine and he did exactly what he was told. In hindsight, I should have told him that I needed him, okay. whether or not I knew what I needed. I mean, I don't think I could have communicated like, listen, I need you to be here every other day or something. Sure. But when I knew that I was alone and that I was struggling, I should have said, I can't explain it, but I'm, I need you here. And I didn't. Um, it took five years to get through that pain after that. Um, you know, I, I had a lot of resentment that he couldn't know what I needed, but who would, I'd never been through it. He'd never been through it. We didn't know. But in those first couple days, I, I knew I needed to schedule. I knew I needed to put something together. Okay. When was I going to work? I knew a routine was critical. So I came up with a daily schedule for myself and I got up every morning at seven o'clock I watched Good Morning America. I would order my breakfast. Hospital food sucks, but at least breakfast I could stomach. I uh, would go, I would work. Every morning I would post 
on my door when my conference calls were so that the on-call doctors stayed out of my room <laughs> during that time. Uh, I Again, I was super lucky that I was working and was able to work remote because it kept my focus. Uh, there were a lot of moms on my floor that weren't able to work, and that would have been, for me, a lot harder because I wouldn't have had something that pulled my focus. I created a calendar that I had printed out, and I still have it to this day, and it was just a printout of the uh, three months, or the two months, I guess, that I would have been in there, and the I put a target on October 15th, which was my six weeks, and that I that was what and every day I would cross out the day before Um, and then I had some great friends that were like when can I visit and so I started tracking my visitors and my dad uh, who was retired at the time he retired actually right when I got pregnant with my daughter so at this time you know he's fairly newly retired he would come visit me a couple times a week to pull my laundry and bring me fresh laundry and you know, get me good food because I learned real quick that you didn't have to eat the hospital food and that delivery was a great thing so um I got used to that and I just had a routine and people started visiting and I would schedule video calls and I would check in with my son every night he would listen to me talk to him at night we would do video calls but I would only see him on the weekends again hindsight uh if we would have added in there a routine where he was coming to visit me maybe on Wednesdays and Saturdays Mm -hmm that would have been better for me. I, I didn't realize how affected I would be, even though I was trying to do the right thing. And, and I will say he was fine. Like he was never, I don't think he even missed me because at that point they don't realize that you're gone until they see you. So I don't think I stunted him in any way, but I really probably could have helped my sanity by yeah. having him there. Um, I ended up having a really great friend who worked for herself, who pretty much came to visit me every night, and she would bring me dinner. Audrey. Audrey. Yeah. Yep, Audrey, and she would bring me dinner, and we would sit and chat and work and watch TV, and then I would usually go to sleep around 11, and sometime between 1 and 4 a.m., whenever she was done with a project she was working with, she would leave. The nurses all knew her, and, you know, really, she was my anchor. She knows it now. She knew it then, too. But I didn't I, – had I not had her, my experience would be very different. Um, but I had her, and I had her probably five nights a week for five weeks. That's amazing. It, I was very lucky to have that. Um, yeah. So, you know, it sounds like I did really great. Well, it, I mean, do you think um, – when you're, when you were, you know, and, and if you, if the audience, if you knew Alicia, you would not be surprised <laughs> how organized she is and... Might be borderline uh, OCD. <laughs> maybe. <laughs> um, but do you think when you were kind of busying yourself, right, like for lack of better terms, those first few days, was it just like maybe hadn't fully sunken in? It definitely hadn't sunken yeah. in. And w- part of what we talked about is... I didn't realize all of the things, of the, all the pieces of the choices that I was making that would not really take effect until months and weeks and months later. So I chose to focus on the now. Yeah. The mistake that I made, I mean, I attended every 
group therapy session. I, uh, the chaplain would come visit. Um, I learned that I am terrible at knitting and I finally gave my equipment <laughs> back because I couldn't figure out how to do it properly. Uh, I, I'm not really into arts and crafts. I just really wanted to focus on work because that gave me something focused based and that I could feel like I was successful in what I didn't know and what they have made some changes in the antepartum since I was there uh, is I didn't realize what would happen later based on and and maybe not based on the choices that I made but I I didn't focus on myself I didn't focus on what I needed I focused on what I needed to get done to get to the 36 weeks and to get home to my family, I did not realize that the terror that I was living with, because honestly, I didn't feel it. I didn't let myself feel it. I had some low times. Our anniversary was during it, and my husband was two hours late coming to see me. Um, You know, couldn't be bothered at the time to make it to his wife that was stuck in the hospital. I mean, make him sound Mm -hmm. like an ass, but in that particular case, I'm not going to make excuses for him. He brought dinner, gave me a card, ate dessert, and uh, two hours and eight minutes later was, like, ready to leave. And I was upset. Again, I should have kept talking because where the hell was I going to go? Like, I was stuck there. and I should have expressed what was happening. And the reason I say that is that it wasn't until – a year after Gwen was born that I realized that I had been in a fog for a year and that was devastating. So you weren't, even though you were in the hospital, told you have this condition, all these things going on, you're just trying to get things done. You weren't, you weren't, even though you were the patient, you weren't putting yourself first. And all the questions. And your needs first. That's right. And, and I'm terrible at that, which we know. I mean, I will admit, I still struggle with that and better at it now. A lot of women are. Yeah. We, because we struggle with that. We see a problem. We're problem solvers. Mm-hmm. And we want to fix it or solve it or just get and the hell up. past it. We are. I mean, we grow humans. Like, mm-hmm. that's a big deal and we I felt like my husband who at the time I'd married to him for nearly 14 years how did he not know that I was struggling how could he not see it the doctors you know the questions they ask you and we'll get into PTSD and stuff they and postpartum they ask you do you want to kill yourself? No, I didn't. I didn't want to harm myself. Mm-hmm. Did, did I, do you want to harm your baby? No, I don't want to harm my baby. But I will tell you that I didn't realize that the fact that I felt like I couldn't get my life together, I couldn't, nothing was making sense. Nothing, once I got home, nothing was coming together. Nothing felt right. So the questions that I was answering to the doctor, no, I didn't have quote unquote postpartum, but I was screwed up. I, I, I was dealing with grieving the fact that I didn't have a normal pregnancy. I didn't have the pregnancy I wanted. I didn't have the delivery I wanted. I didn't have the trip home that I wanted. I was just in this like constant fog and I didn't even realize it until Gwen was a year old and I woke up one morning and finally felt like I was semi-normal. So 
when you're in the hospital or the doctor's telling you, you know, as time's going on and you're getting closer, did they give you an outlook? Like, I know for me, I was always, like, all about the stats. I'm like, okay, give me, a, I want a percentage. I want to know, is this going to be okay? Am I, is my baby going to be okay? Like, I wanted an answer. I... I, then I remember focusing on the 95% morta- infant mortality rate. Um, and once I said that, you know, the doctor was like, no, oh, once we know that you have VASA previa, we prepare for it and we make sure that you are within minutes of an OR. I mean, when you're in antepartum and you have VASA previa, you cannot leave the hospital grounds. I technically wasn't supposed to leave the building, but the building happened to be connected to a couple of other buildings. So I can either confirm nor deny that I might have slipped over to where there might have been a convenience <laughs> store that I could get something at. Uh, but I, you have to be within minutes of the OR so that if you start to bleed, they can give you a spinal and get your baby out and everything's fine. Um, I will say I did have one bleed. I was 34 weeks and five days. It was a Monday night and it was the scariest moment because again I'm by myself my husband had not come that day it's 9 p.m. something's wrong I can feel it my charge Mm -hmm. nurse was with me I knew by the look of her because I started feeling contractions I knew by her face that something wasn't right there happened to be some other chaos happening on the floor that particular night Uh, which subsequently ended with them almost losing a mom and a baby to the very same condition. I got lucky in terms of they gave me um, a beta blocker, which opens up all your arteries and it makes you super flush and you're very hot because it brings everything to the surface. It's really uncomfortable to go through. uh, And I knew that I was, if this didn't work, I was going to deliver by myself a week and a half earlier than I had planned and I was terrified and that night my charge nurse who I was very close with uh, she was busy with this other mom I have this vivid memory of watching her wheel she was on a gurney with this mom trying now I, I know trying to stop the bleeding getting her to the OR and I'm in my room having whatever the hell this was called. I don't even know what it was. It was just sort of an attack. And we got through it. Ultimately, the next morning, which was 34 weeks and six days, another doctor came in and very sternly explained to me that if I have so much as a hiccup, I was getting delivered immediately. And luckily, she didn't arrive until eight days later. So everything was fine. And delivery went okay. Delivery sucked. So I had a planned. <laughs> it always sucks. Let's be honest. And it does. And, you know, people told me when I had an emergency C-section with my son, I had labored for 18 hours. Um, turns out I had uh, pregnancy-induced hypertension and was induced at 39 weeks. And uh, long story short, I got induced somewhere between the induction and when he actually came out, he had flipped. So no matter how long I had pushed, he was never going to come out. He was a big baby. He was eight pounds, nine ounces, but I had had that. So gone through all of this, had this emergency C-section at four 30 in the morning. And everyone said, Oh, if you have a planned C-section, it's going to be amazing. No, 
It wasn't. I threw up after they gave me the anti-nausea medication. So then people told me, oh, you're so lucky. Now you're going to have this plan C section. It's going to be amazing. No. So I go in. They First of all, it's like dead man walking. They don't wheel you in. You, we Everything was prepped. And then you pick up all your blankets and you walk to the OR. So it's very, very so strange. Funny. I feel like there should I be would like never a picture bell that. or a grim reaper yeah. or something like walking to your execution. We get in there. I remember I was on the fifth floor, OR number three, and standing out there and they give you this little cup. I don't know if you drank it, but they give you this little cup of this medicine that's supposed to be this anti-nausea medication. I don't remember. So I drink it. It tastes awful. And we go in, I lay down, and the sequence of ridiculous events start happening. For example, I am strapped down, my arms are strapped down. At some point, I remember the anesthesiologist and my husband were talking to each other, and I, my eyes were closing, and I didn't feel right, but I can't communicate anything. And then someone's yelling at me to open my eyes, but I can't speak. I can hear everything that's happening, but I can't open my eyes. I can't talk. I remember my husband yelling at me, like, Alicia, you need to open your eyes. And then at some point, the anesthesiologist looked at whatever monitor she should have been looking at, and she's like, I I can't remember if she said crap or whatever she said, but she said, oh, and she flipped a switch, and then I was fine. Well, then I started throwing up. So then at this point, I'm vomiting everywhere. Now, mind you, I had taken care because this was all planned, so they tell you not to wear makeup, but I'd put a little makeup mm-hmm. on and I was, you know, <laughs> shine free and I was going to have a little mascara because I wanted the OR pictures to be yeah. a little nicer than my first time. Here I am puking my guts out. So finally everything stabilizes and then they go to open me up and the doctor who delivered Gwen first thing is she says, wow. And I thought, well, that's probably not something you want to hear. Then they pull her out. Now at this point, when you have a high risk pregnancy, there are way more people in the room than are normal. Mm -hmm. And there was a a particular doctor that was studying Vesa Previa cases. And he said to me, can I take a picture of that? I really like to include it in my study. Sure. Sure, buddy. Okay. So someday I picture of my (laughs) actual, um, uh, placenta and vasa previa case will be in some study um, and so there's just all this chaos that happens and Gwen was fine she breathed on her own she didn't have to go into the NICU right away um, you know we didn't have anything crazy after that uh, other than she was tiny I mean I went from having an eight pound nine ounce baby to a six pound 12 ounce which doesn't sound like a lot, but it, you go from having, like, a giant doll to, you know, a, I don't know, like a tiny doll. I mean, it's just so different. Mm-hmm. Ben came out wearing, you know, three-month clothes, and Gwen came out barely fitting newborn clothes. I mean, mm-hmm. that was just crazy. But after that, it was, I mean, it's chaos. For those of you that are having your second baby, whether it's uh, a routine technical pregnancy or there's something going on you forget a lot from your first I mean you think you never will but you do eventually yeah it comes back it is like riding a bike but in the panic of sitting in the postpartum area you're a little freaked out you have no idea what you're doing <laughs> again I can imagine so in the end I mean that that part of it uh, you know I thought okay well here we go our our journey's 
fine. Her scores were fine. She, you know, ultimately had trouble with uh, sucking because they don't learn to really suck until um, starting at 37 weeks, and she was born at 36 weeks. Um, we had to stay, instead of getting out after the second night, we had to stay a third night because she didn't pass her oxygen test from her sleep study, but that, I think, had more to do with the test, administering the test than it did actually the results of the test. Then we went home and she was fine. She was fine. Till a year later, but that's for a different podcast. (laughs) (laughs) But that wasn't uh, her things that happened later. Were they related to any of the condition from the pregnancy? No. No. And I... As I alluded to before, I know I had postpartum for a year. It wasn't until I, mean, I remember the day I came out of my fog. It, that's and that's the best way I can describe postpartum it. Postpartum depression. Yeah, and I was never diagnosed with it because, again, the questions that they ask you are very. They, uh, I was always said no, and yeah. we talked about this a lot when you were going mm-hmm. through it. And I promised you, you know, someday you will feel yourself again. I just wish someone when I was going through it would have been able to tell me that that was, I mean, in everybody's defense, right? Nobody knew that something was wrong. I didn't know that anything was wrong. I just, I remember feeling like I couldn't do anything right. I couldn't get it together. You know, I had no idea what I was doing. Everything just seemed overwhelming. And, you know, I had a lot of help. I was super lucky and, you know, my parents lived nearby and they were able to help with my daughter every morning and my son and, you know, my husband was there and helpful and everything was fine. I didn't realize that I had PTSD until two or three years later. I think it was three years later. And was the PTSD a result of the hospital time? As I delved into it, it -hmm. is extremely common for moms of high-risk pregnancies Mm -hmm. to develop PTSD. Another thing where if they gave me a pamphlet for it, I didn't read it. It was certainly never discussed in group either. Um, How I discovered it was completely by accident. I would have for years, I had these night terrors and they, I would literally watch my children die in these dreams that I was having. And I would wake up in this crazy, crazy panic. And it was awful. I mean, I'd had night terrors of other subjects growing up for various things. So I just thought it was, you know, my overactive imagination for whatever. And I, and I, sometimes it was my daughter that I would watch die. Sometimes it was my son that I would watch die. And I, ha- I, I was very close with my original OB. As I mentioned, when I got diagnosed with Vesa Previa, I had to switch to uh, a high-risk team. But my original OB, I was close with her, and I had actually chosen uh, birth control after I'd had my daughter, and I was going to get things switched out. And I happened to mention to her these night terrors that I was having because she was pregnant with her third child when I was pregnant with my daughter. And I just, I don't even remember why I was, we were just chatting about stupid stuff. And I mentioned how awful it had been. I had just had the most horrific night terror the night before. And she said, well, you know, that's your PTSD. And I said, no. And she she sat me down and explained to me what PTSD 
is how it is most commonly developed for people that have gone through what I had gone through. And I said, you know, okay, well, what do I do? And she said, well, you're never going to get over it. You have to learn what your triggers are. Mm-hmm. Once you learn what your triggers are, you can learn to management and I manage it. And I will tell you that was the best advice. It just was completely organic. I, it, for whatever reason that spurred some conversations, I ended up finding a therapist and, and talking about things and within three months the night terror stopped and I had lived with those for years. Learning what the triggers are with the night terrors, the fact that it was PTSD, I think just knowing that was really a critical piece for me. I, I, I never knew to look for it. I never knew that it was a common piece and I didn't know what it was. I just got lucky that I mentioned it. Why do you think that it's not talked about at the hospital or I think that and, and I'll relate it to uh, uh, repetit- repetition I think repetition is the number one reason it's not mentioned because we're going through all of these things for the first time our minds are sponges but the people that are giving us these, these pieces of information we're probably their hundredth case of the month I mean, I'd never even heard of vasoprevia, right? When I got diagnosed with it, here I am on an antepartum floor in group therapy with four other moms that have the same condition. Which is, you know, like, do you think, like, I know I took a few classes, right, at Swedish First Hill, downtown Seattle here, and, you know, in preparation for pregnancy, and they they don't talk about many things at all that can happen and it's you know do they do that because they don't want you to freak out uh or get into your head is it do they do that because there's just so many conditions to name they wouldn't have to time is it (laughs) i mean or is it just a lack of which we know um maternal care and advocacy well i think it's probably all of the above truly and you you and I have talked about this as well we have this piece where we don't know questions to ask like we don't know what we don't know but you you don't know what to ask you don't know what you're looking for it is a very dangerous thing to go down a rabbit hole yeah and you can play google doctor yeah but if these things were more readily available well from our doctors or from let me ask you let me ask you something you went down the google rabbit hole i did a few times (laughs) do you think that it helped or hindered your particular case um once i knew the labels of what things actually were yeah um what to what to actually google right um yes and no yes from the sense that okay yeah this does exist but did it really have any information that was helpful to me unfortunately not um and you know it kind of brings me full circle as to why i decided to do this in the first place this this podcast um because these things aren't talked about People don't talk about complicated pregnancies, you know. You only see 
uh, Instagram, you know, maternity shoots and everything's lovely and, you know, hear the good stories you don't always hear. Um, and it doesn't mean that the story doesn't end well, but you don't often hear the complications yeah. or the pain. Or I the... always say that not everyone wants information, not everyone needs information, but we should definitely have a way to get information like this podcast. I did a, a woman that was had the same diagnosis as me. Unfortunately, it was her first pregnancy. I had the luxury of it being my second pregnancy, so I already had gone through the anxiety that your first pregnancy mm -hmm. brings and first delivery brings. So luckily, I... I was a bit more calm than some of the first time moms, mm -hmm. but this woman who was with me, she ended up delivering her daughter two days before I delivered mine. And she joined a group uh, that was specific for Vesa Previa. And we counsel moms, it's a Facebook group page. We counsel moms that are, have recently been diagnosed with Vesa Previa and they can ask all kinds of questions on there. And I, I, wish and I highly encourage listeners find these podcasts find groups chat groups that you can talk about these things and ask the questions that are specific to your case mm -hmm. because your doctors have a lot of information but can't necessarily relay the right information that you need to get through the particular issue because if you haven't been through it like I can talk about my situation right but my mm -hmm. situation is very different from mm -hmm. your situation mm -hmm. because I didn't I had to deal with would she come how early would she come you're having to deal with pain on top of uh, it can is there going to be enough room to grow is you know mm -hmm. there it's a lot different experience so the questions that you would ask would be very different than the questions that I would ask right um, and then I think we, for whatever reason, I don't know if it's all of us that were born after 1975 or what, we stop talking about real stuff, which is hilarious because we're all the reality TV generation, but we quit actually having the real conversations. And I didn't have anyone that I felt comfortable going to and saying, look, I'm scared or I'm lonely and mm -hmm. I don't know how to ask for it you know that's it's nobody's fault like nobody made me that way I just wish as maybe a healthcare worker you know you talked about in this country we don't have a lot of support and those kinds of things mm -hmm. maybe it would have been better if somebody would have said hey Alicia this is tough you know you want to make sure that you are communicating with you are surrounding your spouse, your mm -hmm. friends. You know, if you can't articulate something, just say you need a handhold and see where it goes from there. And so with that um, advice, so advice to others uh, that are, you know, an overall advice if you're in the hospital, if you're dealing with complications, if you're dealing with um, postpartum depression, if you're dealing with PTSD, my, what, my, do you, what do you... <laughs> that's a big question. Big question. Very loaded question. Number one piece for anything is do not become an internet doctor. Don't. That's my advice. I highly recommend that you be extremely careful what rabbit hole you go down because it can be dangerous for you to get 
down too far into it. However, ask questions. And even if you can't diagnose yourself or you don't want to diagnose yourself, if you're struggling for whatever reason, something just doesn't feel right, listen to your gut. Whether it's something's not feeling right with yourself, something's not feeling right with your baby, something's not feeling right in your relationship, you have to speak up and you have to reach out to someone. Find you. Everybody's got some advocate. It might not be your spouse. It might be your best friend. It might be your doctor. Start having a conversation because ultimately your instincts Mm -hmm. are correct. And sometimes we ask questions or we're panicked about something, which turns out to be nothing. But I, I tell the moms that I counsel now in, in the support group that I work in, which is very cathartic, uh, volunteer, if you suffer from anything, I highly recommend it. It's very cathartic. But I tell them, if you, if you have a question that's being unanswered in your gut, keep asking questions until that instinct is settled. Because, okay, you might not have fibroids. You might not have vasoprevia. Your baby might not need to be delivered at 36 weeks but if there's something inside of you that's uneasy then keep asking the questions and if you have a care provider or someone on your team that's making you uncomfortable asking those questions then you need to change providers period it's a good takeaway you you have to be an advocate for yourself and that is one of the things that i will say alicia always was telling me that was um that i'll never forget that was very helpful was keep keep asking questions you know yourself best yep you've got to listen to it because you just I mean you don't know you don't you, you don't know how to help yourself but you know that something isn't right so keep on working toward it and it's it is tough if you're sitting on bed rest whether you're at home which is awful I mean it if you are in the hospital or at home they are equally miserable it is really challenging to not be able to do the things that you're used to being able to do. And the people around you, good intended spouses, friends, family, they don't realize because they see you sitting on the couch and, you know, or dying to sit on the couch. Well, for the first six, da- six hours or six days, it's great, <laughs> you know, and you're like, yeah, this is wonderful. And then reality kicks in gets old really fast yeah which i think maybe now people will understand going through covid yeah yeah. (laughs) everyone's gonna quite possibly a little bit better (laughs) you just just listen to your gut listen to your gut keep asking questions until that voice is settled and is there any one thing that you think got you through everything if you had to attribute it if i had to attribute it to one thing it would be my friends my friends got me through it. And particularly, I was lucky to have Audrey, who was around all the time. But people that I knew were friends, but I, I didn't necessarily talk to quite often, they came to visit. And it was touching, right? People took out of time out of their day mm-hmm. to come bring me a gift or bring me food that wasn't hospital food. That's another thing. Delivery service. That got me through. <laughs> So that connection was really special. It it was. It was. And meaningful and people wanted to connect with you knowing you were in a in an uncertain place. And you, you get lucky in those situations to find out that you've 
connected with somebody more than maybe you realized you had. And I got really lucky to have that. And I would say the last thing is probably a routine. When you are faced with something uncertain, grab on to the things that you can lasso. And your schedule is one that you can. Keep things consistent. Keep things sane. Control what you can. Create a sense of normalcy. Yeah. Yeah. And if all else fails, you know, just post your conference calls somewhere outside your door so that your doctors don't come in unless you're off the phone. (laughs) There you have it. Well, Alicia, we thank you for uh, sharing everything that you did. Alicia's story helped me, and I'll be sharing how in a later episode. I believe she was placed in my life for a reason. Thank you again for listening to the first episode of Resilience Found. If this story can help even just one person out there listening today, then my job is done. Please be sure to check the episode description for links to the various topics that we talked about today with organizations that can help and have more information.